Hey everyone, I'm Robert Polly, and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project, the only radio program that I'm aware of for which two episodes on general relativity are not enough. Not this year. Not when Einstein's sublime theory of space, time, and gravity is turning 100 years old. It was in 1915 that Einstein revealed his discovery to the world and forever changed our understanding of the universe. And you might have heard our uh, two-part intro to general relativity, broadcast originally in uh, 2012 and then re-aired a couple of weeks ago in honor of this big birthday. And if you didn't hear it, you can always listen at your leisure by going to our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. But you do not have to do that in order to enjoy today's show, in which we explore some new wrinkles in relativity, some nagging questions, and maybe, just maybe, some cracks in the foundation. And uh, to talk about these matters, which are fueling a lot of head-scratching and chin-wagging among physicists these days, we're going to bring back the very same guy who explained general relativity to us in that earlier two-part series, the theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and relativist, Anthony Aguirre. Stay tuned. Anthony, what are you doing to celebrate general relativity <laughs> in its hundredth year of existence? Well, right now I'm teaching general relativity. I'm teaching the graduate students at, at UC Santa Cruz. So one thing I like to do with the students is give them a little pep talk where I go through a rough calculation of how many people really understand general relativity that can work through the math of Einstein's equations, really understand what they mean, understand what curvature is, and so on. And it turns out to be about one person in 100,000. You know, and, and I equate this in monetary terms. This, this means they're sort of intellectually as rich as someone with $100 million. Or, uh, or they're someone who was born at midnight under a January full moon, something like that. So it's a very, very rare thing. And I think that's both encouraging and discouraging in a sense. It's encouraging because it, it's a beautiful thing that they get to accomplish. But it's discouraging because, you know, it's only one in 100,000 people who know why things fall down fundamentally. And and so I think one thing that I'd like to to celebrate is that lots more people are getting interested in it. And I think although it's very hard to get the full mathematics behind general relativity, I do think many more than one in 100,000 people can understand conceptually what it's about and have the basic picture in their mind and sort of experience that beauty, even if they don't get all the math. Yeah, I, for instance, have not conquered the math, but I do sense the beauty of it and I marvel at it and it no longer seems impossible or utterly esoteric to me, thanks to people like you who've explained it to me. I think as with many subjects, the more you understand the math, the the sort of deeper and more beautiful it gets. But you get to experience a lot of that depth and beauty without having to, to do all of the math and work out tensors and differential forms and everything. When you think about it yourself, uh, about general relativity, are you always working with the math in some form or other? Or have you translated that into a kind of, I don't know, intuitive, even pictorial sense of what space-time is like? It's ultimately a geometric theory. And so a lot of it is thinking pictorially and geometrically and, and in terms of diagrams of space-time and understanding how space-time fits together and events in space-time fit together. Then, though, when you go to actually do a calculation, the math is abstract enough that you have to kind of dive in and really manipulate the symbols and kind of get lost in the symbolism for a while and, and work through line by line 
what the implications are and then come back to the sort of physical world at the end. Some subjects in physics, as you go through a calculation, you can sort of interpret each step. You say, okay, now this is conserved momentum and this is what this means and this is what this means. With general relativity, there's a sense in which you go through a calculation and there are 30 steps in the middle that just you don't know what they're actually about. You, what you understand is the the bottom line result at the bottom. You're, you're following the recipe in the middle, and then when the dish is cooked, you can look at it and say, whoa, that means that this would happen, that space and time would behave in this way, right? Exactly. And and that's, I think the true beauty of physics to me is is that ability to to take a physical problem, translate it into a precise mathematical one, work through the math, and then come back to the real world. There was a, a really a formative experience in my physics career was when I was in high school, we were, I was taking a mechanics class, and we were studying the gyroscope. You know, and the, the weird thing about a gyroscope is it's spinning, but it doesn't fall down. Why doesn't it fall down? Well, it doesn't fall down because normally the gravity that's pulling it over we call that in physics a torque. It makes the gyroscope want to rotate about the point where it's contacting the ground. But what you find when you work through the mathematics of it, and this is just working through the pure math, is that that torque, what it actually does is make the gyroscope want to go around rather than fall down. So you work through the math, it's all these cross products and things, and it says, okay, there it is. Gravity makes it want to go around. And you think, how... Okay, how can gravity make it want to go around? But there's the math. And then when you do it, indeed, the gyroscope just goes around rather than falling over. So that was an early impression of how, you know, there was this abstract mathematical world that you could trust, that, that physics would take you to that world. You could live there for a little while, do some things, then come back to the real physical world with real understanding, with something that was true. And that, I think, is one of the beauties of general relativity and, or, or other very mathematical theories, quantum field theory and quantum mechanics as well. You can go to this other world and do calculations and find results that you would never have guessed, staying sort of in your physical intuition, but that are true. Well, that's you know, sort of a perfect um, transition to something I want to take up with you, and that is black holes, mm -hmm. which were an outcome, a result of solving Einstein's equations, right? Right. Uh, wasn't it Schwarzschild who solved them in such a way as to describe a black hole? He was really the first person to solve Einstein's equations. Einstein developed these equations. He thought, oh, my God, these are horrible. No one's ever going to solve these <laughs> equations. They're, they're technically 10 nonlinear second-order partial differential equations that are coupled. I mean, it's the most horrible thing you could imagine. It's a beautiful theory, but the equations are not ones you want to try to solve. Mm -hmm. So Einstein sort of despaired of anyone ever solving these things. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so he, he came up with the, you know, these field equations, right? Which describe the effect of mass on space-time. Right. But solving the equations, it, it's not just a matter of plugging in a few numbers and just no, this is, performing this is, a few operations. Yeah. It's, it's a truly horrible set of things if you write <laughs> them out to, to see. <laughs> but what Schwarzschild was able to show is that if you assume enough constraint on the problem. If you assume that the problem is what's called spherically symmetric, if, if the thing that you're describing is the same in all directions, so like a sphere or a, a set of nested spheres or something like that, if you assume that it's spherically symmetric and unchanging, so the technical term is static, then Einstein's equations boil down to something simple enough that you can actually solve. You could solve Einstein's equations and find the mathematical form of the space-time 
outside of some spherical mass. Now, what he also discovered is that if you let the mass be small enough, then peculiar things happen. The form of the space-time kind of gets all strange at this particular radius called the Schwarzschild radius. Um, and that's what we now call the black hole, that this radius where things go nuts is the black hole horizon. And a lot of people have spent a lot of time since then working out what does that actually mean, that the structure of space-time is so strange there. And by the way, we're talking about Carl Schwarzschild. It was 1916, only 1916. a year after... Uh, Right. Einstein introduced the idea of general relativity and the equations we're talking about that Schwarzschild solved them in this simplified case you're talking about for spherical masses and discovered, surprisingly, that when you have enough mass uh, in a small enough, it's not volume, really. It's over a certain radius, isn't it? Right. It, it's the Schwarzschild it's radius. enough mass within a certain radius. Right. So it's not density as we normally think of it. That's right. You can have a black hole that's actually, you know, the density of air if it's big enough and has enough mass to it. Right, right, which is a weird counterintuitive thought. But he discovered that when you have this situation, then space-time goes really strange. And a lot of us know some of the strangeness because black holes are something we talk about all the time now, even in popular culture. Mm -hmm. um, but that was just a prediction. When he came up with that and said, look, this is what the equations show, that you would have a situation where you know, this thing has so much mass and, you know, distorts the space-time around it so much that light itself could not escape from this object, right? That right. things passing through this boundary called the event horizon would never return. Space and time themselves, their relationship inside of this event horizon becomes... Reversed. Reversed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, And all paths lead toward the center. The center, which is a time. Which is a time. Which is a, which is a moment in time. Which is kind of a destiny, <laughs> a, an absolutely inescapable destiny of everything that goes into a black hole. So these are weird results. Did um, Schwarzschild himself question them? Did other people say you're crazy or what I happened? I don't think Schwarzschild had a, much of an opportunity to really explore the consequences of this. I think he died you know, not that long after deriving this, unfortunately. Then there was a history of people being pretty confused about how seriously to take this metric. So there were mathematical examinations of thinking about what happens at this horizon. So it was clear that something weird happens at the horizon. And some people thought, well, something physically is there. You know, the, the laws of physics break down at the horizon. This turns out not to be true. Well, we think. Um, <laughs> so we can come back to that question. Yeah. Um, but the consensus was that this is really something to do with the, the coordinate system that you're using, not something intrinsic to the actual space-time. So strange things happen, but the the conclusion of people thinking about this problem is that if you were to actually pass through this horizon, you wouldn't notice anything. You wouldn't even know that you had passed through the horizon. And that's something, again, that that's coming under scrutiny now. So people understood slowly but surely that you could sort of talk about the black hole inside the horizon Einstein actually and, and another mathematician Rosen discovered that inside the black hole, the formal solution that Schwarzschild had was another universe. So that was an interesting twist. That's called the Einstein-Rosen bridge, which is a literally a wormhole between the universe of one black hole and, and another universe. This is not something that we think actual black holes contain in the real world, uh, but it's something that is in the mathematical solution that Schwarzschild worked out. Well, you can't just leave that hanging. <laughs> okay. So first of all, what would this bridge be, and how is it that the math says it's so and the world 
doesn't agree. Yeah, so what Schwarzschild actually derived was what's called an eternal black hole. It's a time-independent black hole. That was one of the assumptions that Schwarzschild had to make in order to solve Einstein's equations, was that the, the thing that he was studying was static, unchanging, and time-reversible. So if you reverse the direction of time in the Schwarzschild solution, you get exactly the same solution back. Now, in the real world, a black hole, you know, such as the ones that we see astrophysically, they form from something. There's a star and then it collapses into a black hole. So it's a, actually a quite different object uh, in terms of the full space-time structure than the solution that Schwarzschild developed. So as we say, um, the whole idea of the black hole then, which, by the way, had been um, anticipated a couple hundred years before by some <laughs> really smart guys, uh-huh. a natural philosopher named John Mitchell and uh, the very famous mathematician slash physicist Pierre Simon Laplace back uh-huh. in the 18th century, had imagined that there might be something whose gravitation was so great that light couldn't escape from it. But Schwarzschild, building on Einstein, is the guy who really first described a black hole as we know it now, right? That's right. General relativistic black hole. But it was still conceptual. Did people argue a lot about this idea over the decades until finally spotting actual black holes they did. out in there, space? They did argue, and there was a lot of conceptual confusion as well about what the Schwarzschild solution represented. So people noticed that if you had a star, for example, that was collapsing and it crossed this Schwarzschild radius, the radius that that mass would have for its horizon, they noticed that from an outside observer's point of view, it would sort of slow down. There's this so-called gravitational time dilation and gravitational redshift. So from the outside view, it looks like the star kind of slowly approaches that radius as well as gets dimmer and redder. There was a period where people called this a frozen star because that's kind of the the implication that the math was giving them. John Wheeler, I think, was really the first to, to sort of fully work out correctly, conceptually, the right way of thinking about it. So I think then they had the theory sort of straight, and there was a question of, should these things exist astrophysically? And there was a good reason to think that they would, in that it could be proven that once you had something with sufficiently large mass that lost its ability to support itself through nuclear fusion, that it would collapse, and, and you can show mathematically that no force, even sort of forces that we haven't discovered yet or or could theorize about can prevent it from from collapsing past a certain point in the case of a star that runs out of fuel you know near the end of its lifespan if it's big enough it might implode and ultimately shrink to the point where it becomes a black hole so what happens to a star depends on its mass if it's a small star like ours it will become a white dwarf supported Mm -hmm. by by electrons But if it's massive enough, you can prove that there's no even theoretical force that can prevent it from continued collapse into a black hole. So um, people, again, prove conceptually that there should be astrophysical black holes, that there was Mm -hmm. a process that could give rise to them in the death of a sufficiently massive star, right, that collapses. Do you know when this was actually confirmed with astronomical observations, when they started to see real black holes out there? I think... The evidence sort of slowly mounted throughout the 60s and 70s. Um, There's a famous candidate, Cygnus X1. So if you look at the summer constellation of Cygnus, sort of around the tail of the swan, uh, there's a very bright X-ray source. And people looking at this X-ray source could sort of show that 
there was something very, very compact, but very, very massive there. And this is sort of how we look for black holes astrophysically. We can show that, you know, there's nothing obviously there in terms of a luminous object with the sort of size that you would expect from something of, of that mass. But the gravity is there. It, it's that much mass packed into a tiny region um, and small enough that unless you dramatically change the basic laws of physics has to be a black hole. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the center of our galaxy, for example, there's something there with millions of solar masses of mass, but in a small enough area that it simply can't be anything other than a black hole. So great. I mean, this says Einstein again was right. You follow his equations to their logical conclusion, and they predict something that decades later you actually find out in space. No matter how strange it might have seemed originally, it's uh -huh. there. Well, one reason I wanted to talk to you about this, Anthony, is that on this 100th anniversary of um, general relativity, I wanted to not only celebrate, you know, like its victories, but find out where the, the holes still are, no pun intended, where the shaky bits still are and where disputes are still going on. And mm -hmm. one of these is surrounding some quirks of black holes something called the information paradox, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something that uh, if people listen to my show much or they go back in the archives and, and dig up old shows, they'll find one I did on this with uh, Lenny Suskind, Leonard Suskind of Stanford University, about the information paradox and about an argument he had with Stephen Hawking, which at the time we did the interview, he thought that he and his pals had won mm -hmm. and decided, uh, but apparently it's a it's got some new wrinkles to it. Um, so tell us about the information paradox. Maybe we can walk through what uh, Lenny thought was the solution and why it's now all come into question again. Okay. To think about the information paradox, we sort of first have to think about a, a really key concept in physics called unitarity. There's a core idea in physics that if we take some region of the universe and we fully describe it, we know the state of that region of the universe, then the laws of physics can then predict what the state of that region will be in the future. That's kind of what physics does for us. Um, unitarity says that it works both directions in time. So if we know what the state is now, we can predict what the state is in the future, and we can turn back the clock. We can run the equations backward and say what the state was earlier. Or if we know the state now, we can retrodict what the state was in an earlier time. Retrodict. So just crank the equations back to say what the state had to be according to the laws of physics in an earlier time. And this unitarity, when did this become a law of nature? I wouldn't say it's a law of nature, but it's a property that all of the fundamental physics laws that we know of have. So quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, general relativity, even Newtonian mechanics, they all have this property of unitarity. Uh -huh. And another way of thinking about it is that information is neither lost nor gained. So if you know everything about a system now, you can turn the crank forward and know what it's going to do in the future. And all the information about the past is still there because you can turn the crank back and recover what you started with. So for example, suppose you take an encyclopedia and toss it in the fire. So this is my, my initial system is fire and encyclopedia. So I burn the encyclopedia up. It turns into ashes and smoke and all that stuff. But the information is still there in the sense that if I look at the state later, and measure it perfectly, I can crank back the laws of physics to recover everything that was in the encyclopedia as well as my firewood and matches and so on. So that's the sense in which people say information is preserved by unitarity. Unitarity is the sort of laws of physics that allow you to reconstruct the past 
or the future from the state of the a system now. Yeah, I can see why this would be a pretty precious concept. The idea that the current state does not predict the future state, that something else enters out of the right. blue. From where? From right. where? What is it? <laughs> that sounds like the antithesis of science and logic and everything else. I mean, it, it could be true. And, and there's a sense in which some people feel that quantum mechanics is not unitary, or there are parts of quantum mechanics that aren't unitary. Because when you make a measurement in quantum mechanics, that's something that you can't run back the clock on. So this is, a, this is another whole discussion yeah, yeah, we, that, that we may... We actually... Um, <laughs> I'm saving the measurement problem for another show or maybe a, yeah, a let's bunch do, of I, I think we don't have to get into it now. Okay. Um, <laughs> and there are many, many solutions that people have yeah. proposed for that problem. But the idea, even in quantum mechanics where things are statistical in nature, unitarity still applies. In quantum mechanics, the, the wave function is the description of a system, and yeah. unitarity applies to the wave function. Right. Now, this is crucial because what Hawking discovered when he first started to, to think about black holes and how black holes might evaporate is that it seemed that unitarity was violated. And, and here's how that happened. What Hawking discovered is that when a black hole forms, if you just take Einstein's equations, general relativity, then the black hole just sits there forever. But if you include quantum mechanics, that can't be the case. So he showed specifically that if you have a black hole, it has to actually have a temperature and then it has to radiate. It has to be a little bit warm Rather than absorbing everything, it gives off a little bit of heat as well. And what is it in quantum mechanics that uh, makes that necessary? One way to think about it is that in quantum mechanics, everything is possible. It's just a, a question of probabilities. And if you have a particle that goes into a black hole or is inside of a black hole, when you look at that quantum mechanically, there's a sense in which it's impossible for the particle to get out. But quantum mechanics says impossible, ha. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, all, all that says is that the probability is very small. Mm -hmm. and, and so a particle inside a black hole can so-called quantum tunnel out of the event horizon, something a, a classical particle couldn't do, but quantum mechanically it can. Now, when you actually mathematically calculate how often that tunneling process would ha happen and how it would happen, it basically corresponds to this radiation that Hawking was talking about. Okay, so we're talking about something that Stephen Hawking um, discovered. It's known as Hawking radiation. And it's the result, really, of that, again, that wave function you mentioned earlier, right? That's, that's the thing that tells you that a, a particle, you know, there is a possibility that it can be anywhere and that it can jump boundaries and you can never pin it down perfectly. Yeah, so what, what Hawking showed was that if you take the space-time of a black hole and do quantum mechanics in that space-time, you have to have this radiation. Right. But it, it led to a strange consequence because... If you have stuff leaving the black hole, then the black hole loses mass. So the black hole evaporates. And it turns out that the black hole gets hotter and evaporates faster as it gets smaller. So it starts out very cold and evaporates very slowly, but it, at the end, it evaporates very quickly. So the black hole, as far as anybody knows, just eventually evaporates and disappears into a cloud of radiation. So despite its gravitation, you know, that we've been led to believe allows nothing to escape. Quantum physics says stuff can leak out and yes. does over time. At a very specified rate and in a very particular way mm. that we can mathematically calculate and, and Hawking did. But what's very alarming or was very alarming to, to Hawking was that 
in contrast to the case of a fire where you say, okay, the fire burned, the, the information is all scrambled up in the smoke particles and whatnot, but it's still there. What he was able to, to show in pretty strong mathematical argument was that this radiation that left the black hole carried no information whatsoever about how what fell into the black hole or how the black hole formed or anything like that. So if you threw, you know, the the encyclopedia into the black hole, then tried to reconstruct from this radiation the entries in the encyclopedia, there's nothing there to work with. So information has been lost, violating Unitarianism. No, that's not the right term. <laughs> The conservation of information, and that's a huge problem for physics. Exactly. But that's not even the whole puzzle. There's another layer to it, which is, suppose the information is in this Hawking radiation. So it goes into the black hole, and then it comes out. That seems simple enough, but if you actually think about what the information is doing, when you throw the encyclopedia into the black hole, you can jump into the black hole with the encyclopedia, and and so you can sort of see the information and read the encyclopedia while you in the minutes before your death but you can also stay outside the black hole and when the black hole evaporates recover the information in the encyclopedia and there's a problem with this because in physics a, a basic thing that you can prove in quantum mechanics is you can't have two duplicate copies of the same information you there, there's a so-called no cloning theorem that says you can't just take an encyclopedia and exactly clone the quantum state of that encyclopedia. So this is, this is bad news for Star Trek transporters and so on, um, but it's a fundamental part of physics and it's just unavoidable if you believe quantum mechanics. So it seems like this violates that no cloning theorem. You've got to copy the information inside and outside the black hole. This objection, I think, was largely, although I'm not sure entirely overcome, uh, by a set of ideas called black hole complementarity, which essentially say that don't think about that. So, so you can describe the outside of the black hole and it will be a perfectly self-consistent full description. Or you can describe jumping into the black hole and reading about the, the information in the encyclopedia as long as you don't try to describe both at once. Describing both at once is sort of tantamount to describing something in quantum mechanics as a particle and a wave at the same time. You can't do both at the same time. You choose one and you get a sensible description from through that lens, or you choose another one, and you get a sensible description. But if you try to do them both at once, you're just not doing it right. And this, by the way, was the, the solution that uh, Lenny Suskind uh, discussed on the, sh the interview I did with him, mm -hmm. um, the idea that there are two perspectives. So right. if you're outside, you will see this this way. If you're inside the black hole, you'll see things this way. And by the way, you can live inside a black hole for a time until you're pulled into the, toward the singularity and ripped apart. And it's true. I mean, you really could. If it was a big black hole, you could live for a long time as you... That's right. And perfectly happy. As it, as it turns out... And reading that... encyclopedias all the way. You know? <laughs> but but complementarity, uh, the folks who came up with this idea borrowed that term from other complementary phenomena in, in quantum physics, like the, f the famous Heisenberg principle. You can't know exactly the position and exactly the momentum of a particle at the same time. They're complementary. You can know a lot about one. The more you know about it, the less you know of the other. Mm -hmm. Right? That's right. So if you're talking about an observer that's outside the black hole versus inside the black hole, you're really talking about a sort of physical system, but you're choosing different sort of languages in which to describe the same thing. And in one language, you use a certain set of words, but it's really mathematics. And in a different language, it's a different set of, of terms that you use. And it's a nice self-consistent description in each language, 
But if you try to talk about it in both languages at once, you just don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was under the um, misconception that this description of complementarity of these two different perspectives, one describing the world as seen from outside the black hole, the other describing the world as seen from inside, actually did solve the unitarity problem. But apparently you're saying it doesn't uh, and that we still have this problem. It doesn't solve the unitarity problem in the sense that it, it's silent on how does the information actually get out of the black hole or how do we see that the information is actually preserved. So it's, From the standpoint of the outside observer, it never goes into the black hole, right? It stops at the horizon One way radiates to out. One way to think about the preservation of energy is that from the outside description, the information doesn't actually go into the black hole. It, it sort of gets frozen onto the horizon and then through this evaporation process comes back into the exterior space. But that is exactly the process that Hawking described, and there's no actual mathematics behind the information actually getting out. Mm -hmm. So it's a conceptual way to say, okay, maybe the way information is preserved by is by not going into the black hole, but it still doesn't show you where that information is actually encoded in the Hawking radiation. Mm. And I think for people who maybe had trouble following that one idea that in this complementarity uh, description, from the perspective of someone outside the black hole, objects never really go through the event horizon into the black hole. They stop at the horizon. I think you can explain that um, by telling yeah. a little story. So a way to think about this black hole complementarity is to think about some object falling into a, a black hole, say, say a coin that just falls through the event horizon. From the coin's perspective, you know, some amount of time passes, it crosses the horizon, some more time passes, it gets crunched in the singularity. Which is the center of the black hole. Exactly. Now, from an outside observer's perspective, the coin approaches the black hole, but it slows down. It gets redder and dimmer. You get fewer and fewer photons coming away from the coin. And if you work it out mathematically, you would say that the time that it takes for the coin to cross the event horizon and become part of the black hole is actually infinite. Mm -hmm. It takes forever for the coin to cross. It never really does. And, and, and the reason... I mean, it, it becomes redder and seems to go slower, again, from the perspective of an outside observer, is? Is because of the structure of space-time. The relationship between the sort of frame of reference at the horizon and your frame of reference far away from it becomes sort of infinitely distorted. There's this infinite gravitational uh, dimming of the light as it's coming out of the black hole and an infinite difference in the rate of time passing in that reference frame and the reference frame far away from the black hole. So one way to think of it is that as you toss that coin into the black hole, from your perspective, it never actually goes in. You never mm -hmm. see it go in. Mm -hmm. You see it get dimmer and dimmer and kind of less and less of the coin is visible to you. But in principle, sort of all of the information about the coin is sort of still accessible because it, it never actually goes in. And in that description, the one available to the outside observer, the information never crosses the event horizon. And so that's one way of thinking about how the information is preserved is that you never think of it as actually going into the black hole. And, and so you get less confused. That being said, after actually a pretty short amount of time, you don't see the coin anymore. What you see is this black object that's just glowing a little bit due to Hawking radiation. And there's still no clear description of how you can recover information about the coin from that thing that you see, this, this glowing 
thermal thing that doesn't seem to have any information in the radiation coming out of it. So the problem remains the same. Information seems to be scrambled, seems to be lost, even when things just land on the event horizon and don't go into the black hole, again, from the perspective of the outside observer. Right. And, and there's a belief that the information is preserved and it is there, but we're still, I would say, lacking a clear physical understanding of exactly how it's encoded mm -hmm. and comes out. Um, this cloning problem is an example of something where when people were thinking about black holes, they said, wait a minute, how does this make sense? If I assume this and this and this, which seem all perfectly reasonable, then I get this conclusion, which violates something else that I deeply believe, like the quantum mechanics, no cloning theorem. Um, and that was largely, many would argue, resolved by this way of thinking about complementarity. But we've now come in the past few years to another problem like that. Another situation where people have said, okay, I'm going to assume perfectly reasonable things, unitarity, I'm going to assume quantum mechanics, I'm going to assume physics is local, meaning that to understand physics in some location, I sort of just need to understand its immediate environment. I don't need to understand everything about the rest of the universe very far away. And if you assume Einstein's equivalence principle, and what that means is that as you, for example, pass through the event horizon of a black hole, you don't notice anything strange. What the equivalence principle basically says is that if you're freely falling, your experience of the world is exactly the same as if there were no gravity. And that's a cornerstone of general relativity. That's the foundation of general relativity. So all of those assumptions you just listed are all real fundamental things. Yes. Unitarity, locality is, is really part and parcel of the quantum field theory description of, of reality. And general relativity, the, it's based on the equivalence principle. So these are all kind of foundational things. And these researchers were able to show that if you assume those things, then again, you, you find a violation of the laws of quantum mechanics. So uh, the researchers you're talking about um, came out with an article in um, 2012. They are Ahmed uh, Almeri, sorry if I'm mispronouncing names, Donald Marolf, Joseph Polchinski, and James Sully. And... They essentially brought forth this paradox that the combination of these near and dear to our hearts as physicists assumptions in a particular setup involving a black hole seems to violate quantum mechanics. So they go through, well, okay, we have to give up something. We have to give up one of these things. What is it that we're going to give up? Their choice of the three things to give up was to give up the equivalence principle. And so they said, in fact, as you pass through the black hole event horizon, you do notice something. There's a wall of fire there at the Planck energy. The Planck energy is sort of the highest possible energy that you smash into. So, so you really can't think of the space-time within the event horizon. You, there's, a, there's a sort of insurmountable barrier that you run into as you cross the horizon. So this is one possible resolution of this paradox. It's this is called the firewall. One. This is the firewall. Um, yes. Not the usual meaning of firewall. Uh, which is a safety. Uh, well, <laughs> it is in the sense that it's protecting <laughs> physics from this horrible paradox. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, <laughs> so, so it's a great play on words then. So it's a wall of fire and it is a firewall against the destruction of physics as we know it. Yeah. Um, and they said that the equivalence principle would have to go. Does that threaten general relativity? Or is this just a special case where there's a wall of fire and I don't even know what that means, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone knows. I think the you know their point is we'd have to give up one of these things or you have to show why this argument is wrong. And so 
that I think is where people have been mostly focusing their attention is, is saying, there's gotta okay, be something wrong there's got to be something wrong with this argument. And, and I think it's safe to say that if there's something wrong with the argument, it's not something obvious and stupid. These are not stupid people and smart, you know, a lot of smart people have spent a lot of effort trying to figure out what's wrong with the argument. You know, every week or two, a new paper will come out saying this is what's wrong with the argument and then they'll respond. So I think it's, it's controversial. And I would say that it's still quite possible that someone will, will sort of say, well, actually the way you've put these assumptions together in this, you're missing something in the description. There's a resolution of this that doesn't require us to give up one of these three things. And I think that's still quite possible. It's not easy. So they've been very effective at defending their paradox against the people who would, who would explain it away. So I think that's where we are. We don't know whether there's something wrong with the argument. If it is, it's something subtle. It's not something blatant and stupid. Or whether we have to give up one of these cherished things. And if we do, which one is it going to be? Is it going to be the equivalence principle causing relativists like me to to cry? Will it be the unitarity causing everyone to cry? Will it be locality? Probably less people will cry for locality, but it's still very confusing. I think we genuinely don't know how that's going to play out. So, So there have been just hundreds of papers exploring this paradox and trying to trying to circumvent it and uh explain it away in in various different ways time will tell how it how it turns out it's a, it's a fascinating question in that it's a question that you feel has a resolution there there is going to be a way that this gets resolved and it's not going to be experiment that tells us what it is either you know 20 years from now i think there's going to be an answer to this no experiment will be involved, and yet I bet everyone is going to largely agree on what the answer is. So um, it's not going to be through creating a small black hole in the laboratory and throwing something into it. In fact, you can create black holes in the laboratory, um, not of the gravitational kind, but in fact, you can produce sort of black holes in the in the laboratory because if you have a medium like water, say, or or some superfluid, it carries sound waves. And if you have the the fluid sort of draining down a pipe, say, at faster than the speed of sound in that fluid, then when you create sound waves within some radius, they can't get out. It's like an event horizon for oh, sound waves. Oh, it's a, it's 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 a simulated black hole. Yeah, and the, yeah. Bill Unruh, in, I think, largely invented this. He called them dumb holes because they can't talk; <laughs> right? they're quiet. And what you can show is that a lot of the same things, Hawking radiation, for example, is there in the equations for these these dumb holes. So Hawking radiation is not something that has to do necessarily with gravity or even quantum mechanics. Hawking radiation appears to have something to do with the fact that information can't get out of some region oh, of, wow. of space. Wow. It's just amazing to me. I mean, sound travels very, you know, relatively slow compared to light. It's this seems like just such a humdrum thing to do. Water in a drain. You can pretty much do it in your bathtub. It, I think exactly. someone tried to work out, you know, and yet you it produces something as exotic potentially as Hawking radiation. I would never, you know, who am I? But I would never have guessed that that was. That's pretty cool. That you could model a black hole with something like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this weekend I know what I'm doing. <laughs> 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 um. This is a fascinating uh, situation that physicists find themselves in, and it's not the first time, obviously, when a problem has confronted you guys with like a Sophie's Choice, like which of these dear things are you willing to let go of? 
Yeah. And I would assume it depends on where you've invested most of your career. <laughs> you're you're a relativist. It depends on various things. So I think, you know, for me, I I don't buy the firewall for a second. And but but the reason is that my belief is that a black hole horizon is not any particularly different from other horizons that appear in physics like the the cosmological horizon. So we think that we live in an, a a exponentially expanding universe. That's something we've observed. That cosmology has a horizon. And the mathematical description of that horizon, which is called a de Sitter horizon technically, is pretty similar to the black hole horizon. But if it's really pretty similar to the black hole horizon, shouldn't there be a firewall there too? But if there's a firewall there, then if you take an observer who's you know pretty distant from us, we're at that horizon for them. Yes. So shouldn't we be at... On top of a firewall. We're all a on firewall the should be everywhere because yes. the horizon is everywhere. Well, the horizon is a completely relative concept. I mean, it's, it's a certain distance away from whatever observer is observing, right? That's it. For in cosmology. So yeah. a black hole horizon is at a particular place. And so right. it, it has a different character in that sense. Yeah. But the fundamental ingredients that make it a horizon, the sort of space-time close to the horizon, looks just the same. There are all kinds of space-times that have just the same sort of structure. For So why would there be a firewall in this one and not in other ones? Can you explain a little more about the firewall? We we sort of brush past that really quickly. Mm-hmm. Is it on the event horizon exactly, or somewhere near it? That this it's at the event horizon. So so the way that it it sort of works out is that if you want to describe the quantum mechanics in some space time, you have to make a choice as to the quantum state. So what most people say is that the the quantum state is well approximated in sort of a big empty space by the vacuum state. The vacuum state is the sort of the lowest possible energy state. But when you have a curved space-time, as it turns out, and this is this is what made it really challenging for Hawking and others to develop this whole subject, um, there isn't an obvious unique vacuum state. There are actually different choices of the vacuum state that you can make. And they'll have different properties. So, for example, uh, there's a vacuum state that you can choose where there's no radiation that comes out of the black hole. Okay? But... In that same vacuum state, if you go to the horizon, there is an infinite energy density. Okay, That's basically the firewall. So what Hawking, when he did his first calculation, what he assumed was that I'm going to choose the vacuum state where as I cross the horizon, nothing happens. Mm. He assumed the equivalence principle. Mm -hmm. That dictated his choice of the vacuum state. Mm. And from there, he had Hawking radiation. And there's no sign, you know, on space-time that says, here's the vacuum state, or or any real indication of why you have to choose one vacuum state over another. It's it's an assumption that you put in based on other considerations. So that's in some sense how the firewall comes about. You are forced to choose a quantum state in which the when you actually work out the quantum mechanics and the quantum field theory of it, you find that there's kind of a pileup of energy at the black hole horizon that you know formally is infinite but then if you if you think that energy can't be infinite the highest density can have is the planck density um that's where you get the firewall planck got his name on such cool things <laughs> the planck length planck energy it's a little bit unfair he got he got the whole system of fundamental <laughs> measurements named after him the planck's constant you know yes but you're saying um if i can sum up then that uh, the four researchers who I named earlier, and I won't go through their names again, basically in order to preserve um, several assumptions, unitarity and um, locality, decided to sacrifice 
the equivalence principle. Right. And they can do that by making an assumption about the quantum vacuum state, right, in this model that then leads to the idea of this firewall, Essentially, this yeah. Planck energy or infinite energy at the event horizon, which means that, again, anything passing through would be, what, essentially obliterated at that point? Um, yeah, or, I, th- I, I think you would sort of say that there's a there's sort of a singularity there uh-huh. in the sense the the space-time structure breaks down there. Uh, uh-huh. the or at the horizon, which is now a singularity. It's a singularity that's not a point at all. It's a, um, you it's, know, a it's a sphere. It's a null surface. Yeah, null it's a, surface. It's a sphere, sphere is probably wrong. It, it's spherical, but it's also expanding at the speed of light, um, but staying at the same radius. It's very <laughs> space time. <laughs> this is this yeah. is where you get up. <laughs> wow! But you don't buy it at all, and the reason you don't buy it is because you believe so strongly in the equivalence principle. Yeah. So so there's two things you can buy or not. One is do you buy the argument that they make, and I'm not sure that I do, but. That puts me in the camp of many people who are not sure that they buy the argument but can't point out exactly what's wrong with it. And then if you buy the argument, then you can ask, what is it that I want to give up? Uh, do I want to give up the equivalence principle or locality um, or unitarity? And then Which one, by the choices. way, equates to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, so if the argument were correct, I would not buy that the equivalence principle is the right one to give up because I don't believe that there's something fundamentally different between a black hole horizon and other sorts of horizons. And so I don't see how to make sense of it. I would probably lean towards, okay, probably that's let's give up locality that physics has to be non-local in some way. And then if I had to give up unitarity, but between unitarity and equivalence principle would be really an unpleasant uh, oh, rock yes. and a hard place to the, be between. The cards would come tumbling down <laughs> in either case. Yeah. Wow. So I'm holding out that there is a subtle and deep and interesting way in which their argument is is making more assumptions than it claims to be and that one of those assumptions is not right. Hmm. And you said that, of course, this will be solved because things ultimately are and it will be done without experimentation Um dumb holes notwithstanding, it will be done by people like you just sitting there banging on it, yeah, over and over again. That is what I think will happen. Are you one of those banging on it? Yeah. Oh, you are? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And a lot of people are. And it's really fun to talk about it now because I did want to discuss where general relativity stands, where might it have some challenges? And this is one, you know, a a, a cornerstone of general relativity is the equivalence principle, which we talked about in our two-part introduction to general relativity. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, if black holes, which were really the baby of general relativity, end up killing their dad, that would be pretty (laughs) fascinating, wouldn't it? I mean, a theory that ultimately, you know, in sort of Oedipus fashion, you know, begets its own murderer. But... uh, that's not likely to happen anytime soon. But there ha- have been some interesting speculations or ideas that have come out of the arguments. And, and one of them, <laughs> we talked about this a little bit via email before this conversation, is a recent article um, that challenged the existence of black holes altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about this one by, um, is it someone you know, Laura Mercini Houghton? Yes. And and there's there have actually been a couple couple of 
non-existing black hole papers. Uh, hers, there was actually a, a note by Hawking talking about how black holes in the classic sense don't exist. There's probably a Geary et al. in preparation talking about maybe how black holes don't quite exist. Don't quite way. exist. Well, tell me what all you people are talking about. Yeah, black holes well, don't quite I, exist. We may be talking about different things. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, the bottom line of Hawking's paper, uh, and and I think this is something that I largely agree with, is that you have to distinguish between a true event horizon and what's called in the literature an apparent horizon. So a true event horizon says there's this sort of region that can never be seen from the outside world. Um, the region beyond the event horizon. Right. And inside. Th- so it's by definition the region that can't be seen from sort of off from a large distance. Now you can ask if a black hole actually evaporates, is there in fact such a region? You know, and, and at some level, straightforwardly, the answer is there's not because the black hole goes away. You know, so one way in which some of these arguments may be going astray, I think, according to Einstein, and, and I think I agree with this, is that you have to be very careful about where you're assuming that there's an actual event horizon. An actual event horizon is something that's there forever. And if a black hole evaporates, there is no actual event horizon that's there forever. There's, you know, there's something that looks like a black hole for an a, a astoundingly long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually it goes away. And that the eventually is a, is actually pretty crucial. So for a long time, you can get away with treating it like it's an event horizon. You know, it it, it acts like, just like a pure event horizon in, in all in the classical space-time structure and so on. But it's not really. And so the question is, um, are you going astray somehow in ascribing too much of a perfect event horizon properties to something that actually is time changing. The actual black hole event horizon is a static thing. Um, and as a black hole is evaporating, the horizon is, you know, getting smaller and is not really an event horizon. It's what's called an apparent horizon. An apparent horizon is essentially somewhere with the following property. So suppose you take a, a glass sphere and you, you attach some lasers pointing outward the the sort of area lit up by those lasers gets bigger and bigger right so as as the light shines away from that sphere fills up larger and larger regions if you point the the lasers inward the the region getting illuminated kind of gets smaller as you follow the tracks of those lasers that's how normal space time works now in a black hole if you shine the light in it converges toward the center of the black hole. If you shine it outward, it also converges toward the center of the black hole. So so that's called a trapped surface, sort of whichever way you shine light mm-hmm. from it, it goes in. Mm-hmm. And that's the borderline between where there's a trapped surface and where there's not. That's the apparent horizon. Mm-hmm. And in my naivety, I always thought that's what an event horizon was. And as a black hole evaporates, I always imagined the event horizon itself maybe you know, shrank and disappeared over right. time. Right, and, and what you really should be thinking of is apparent horizon when you think that. Why is it that an event horizon in, by its very nature has to be permanent and static and all that? So the definition of an event horizon is that you, you draw the whole space-time, the space-time throughout all of space-time's history, and then you say, okay, let me go off, you know, far away from whatever this thing is and say, are there regions that I can never see no matter how long I wait? So it's a property of the whole space-time throughout history, the event horizon, 
Whereas the apparent horizon is something that you can define sort of now. You can say, here's the black hole, here's the event, here's the, I'm sorry, here's the apparent horizon. To define an event horizon, it's a property of the whole history of space and time. And if the black hole goes away, then arguably that event horizon is not really there. And so that's the the point that I believe Hawking was making in this recent paper and that I think needs to be taken more seriously because it's just not clear whether that conflation of the two types of horizons is sneaking in and screwing things up, for example, in this firewall argument. Mm. But that would not mean there aren't black holes. It depends a little bit on what you define as a black hole. But if you define a black hole as something that has trapped surfaces, say, yeah. um, then there certainly are. Right. And that's the popular definition anyway, right? right? What about the other folks saying there may be no black holes? So Laura Mercini's take is a little bit different. What she's claimed is that if you actually try to follow the collapse of an object to form a black hole, then you should take into account that not just in sort of the distant future, but during that collapse process, there's something like Hawking radiation. Hawking radiation is is something that's calculated, you know, in a static space-time per Hawking's calculation. But in general, if you have a space-time that is changing in time and you do quantum mechanics on it, you get creation of particles. Um, and that that's kind of a whole story. But you have radiation that comes out of the time-changing space-time. And her claim is that if you properly account for that radiation, that it actually has negative energy density. And if you include that negative energy density, it provides a repulsive force that turns around the collapse and you don't actually have something that crosses the event horizon and becomes a black hole. So you have Hawking radiation before you have a black hole in that case. Yes. I'm not sure if you'd want to call it Hawking radiation. I'm Uh not sure if she does. But the claim is that there is some radiation that needs to be taken into account during the collapse process. And that if you properly account for it, that it qualitatively changes the picture. It stops the collapse before it becomes a black hole. Right. So it never gets to be one. That's the claim. What do you think of it? Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Yeah. Um, I'm holding out for that Aguirre et al. paper (laughs) myself. (laughs) Anthony, um, who would have thought that these objects called black holes proven mostly through thought experiments, not obviously not through experimentation and, and not very much through observation either, they're too far away and we can't tell much about them, right? Mm-hmm. Would have pushed physics forward in so many, mm-hmm. you know, completely surprising and unpredictable ways. I mean, even maybe challenged the foundations of physics. It's incredible, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. And I mean, it, at some level, it's it's clear that if you have some object that's going to have quantum properties and gravitational properties, both of which you have to account for, you're going to be confused by it because we don't understand quantum gravity. But what's been interesting to me is that, that it's sort of exactly the right level of confusion. So if, if, you, if you talk about the Big Bang singularity, say, you're confused and you don't know what to do with it. Right. You know, it's just confusing. You, yeah. you know, quantum, gravity, gravity, quantum, you don't know what to do with it. Black holes, you understand well enough that you can pose interesting questions like Hawking's calculation, like the black hole no cloning paradox, like the firewall paradox. You know enough to get confused and to actually make progress in alleviating that confusion by thinking more carefully and refining your understanding and laying bare your assumptions more carefully and learning things. They're fascinating playground because you understand them just well enough 
to to confuse yourself enough to to make progress. Oh yeah, but not a child safe playground at all. <laughs> One last thing, Anthony. Um, when you and I last talked, um, you were among those who were feeling pretty giddy about some um, recent findings that seem to confirm not only aspects of general relativity, but of the inflationary model of the uh, early universe. Um, This was trumpeted all over the media. I think almost everybody, even non-physicists, heard about this. Some data had been collected by this um, detector at the South Pole called BICEP-2. It uh, is a... um, it's a kind of microwave telescope. It looks at the uh, microwave background radiation that uh, envelops us and is a, a relic of the uh, the early days of our observable universe and uh, encodes a lot of useful information about what the early universe was like. People thought they had detected um, in this microwave background radiation, this cosmic microwave background radiation, evidence of early gravitational waves from this hypothetical inflation that blew up the universe from a tiny, tiny size to a macroscopic size. It's a real, real important part of our current uh, model of the cosmos. And a lot of people such as yourself are very excited. That's right. Um, And sadly, (laughs) within recent months, people have had to call off the party and and sort of retract um, those findings because they didn't quite take account of the effects of cosmic dust on the observations. Yes. Yes. So... There's two parts to this. One is the the actual measurements that were made. Those measurements have held up beautifully. They they did detect what's called the B-mode polarization signal from the microwave background data. Further experiments that have been done have validated that that signature is there at just the level that they've measured it. The problem is that there are two, at least two, potential sources of that B-mode polarization. One is the gravitational waves from the beginning of the universe that would be really, really exciting. A second is uh, an effect of the light traveling through the gravitational field in between the early universe and here. And the third is that you can have a contribution from light re-emitted from dust in the galaxy with polarization. Now, the second one is the propagation through the gravitational uh, sort of field of the universe can be calculated and that was subtracted off. Everybody knew that would be there. Everybody knew the dust emission would be there also, but not exactly how much there was. So so they did some reasonably careful modeling of how much dust emission they expected, but they didn't really know. And it turns out that they were simply underestimating how much dust emission there was. And so they you know, correctly said, we've measured this B-mode polarization. They then also announced that with pretty high certainty, they felt that that was primordial gravitational waves. And they simply had underestimated the amount of dust and underestimated their uncertainty in the amount of dust, which is even a a, a sort of bigger sin. Um, It's always fine to get things wrong as long as you have the right uncertainties about it. So so that, that I think was extremely disappointing. I would say it was most disappointing for me of almost all people. Now, this is this is an exaggeration, but <laughs> but most galling to me for the following reason. When I was a graduate student in the very beginning of my career, there was a really exciting discovery going on. It was the discovery of the accelerated expansion of the universe. 
and it was discovered by measuring the brightnesses of distant supernovae and seeing that they were dimmer than they should have been mm -hmm. if the universe was decelerating in its expansion. So I looked at this and said, they're dimmer than they should be. What if there's dust in between us and these distant galaxies and quasars uh, and supernovae? And so I worked out a pretty compelling argument, I thought, um, and even other people thought, that if there were intergalactic dust spread throughout the universe, it could provide that dimming and explain away the supernova results without having this crazy cosmological constant. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, to make a long story short, if you were right, then maybe there's no dark energy to worry about. It, so to me, it was, is there dust or is there crazy dark energy? So right. like open and shut case, right. totally should have been right. I was wrong. There is dark energy. But now, but now, when... I wanted the result to be the really interesting fundamental physics. It turns out it might be dust. Might be dust. Damn. Did, did you feel burnt then by that, by that research? Not burnt, but just, <laughs> just frustrated yeah. in the sense that it was so exciting and now that excitement is, is not there. This data is going to get much, much better in the next five years. I was going to so say. The, the successors to this experiment, BICEP3 and Polar Bear and Spider, there are all these experiments that are ongoing now that are bringing in much, much better data, and with the requisite different frequencies so mm -hmm. that they can measure exactly how much dust and there is. And you can correct for the dust, and you have a more sensitive signal, and right. who knows? So, so they may, either they're going to re rediscover this gravity wave signature, or they're going to put really stringent limits on it, which won't be as exciting, but will still be super useful in mm -hmm. terms of cosmological theory. So it will still be interesting, um, and we can still cross our fingers that, that the gravity waves show up. Uh, but for now, we have to put the champagne back in the refrigerator. Well, you already drank it, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, thanks again. I mean, I learn so much every time I talk to you, and I, I know my listeners do too. It's always a pleasure. Anthony Aguirre is a theoretical cosmologist, an associate professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz, and most important to us, a good friend and benefactor of this radio program, the 7th Avenue Project. You can find our other conversations with Anthony, including our intro to general relativity, at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back with another episode of the 7th Avenue Project next week. <laughs>